Hi there, and welcome to Military Histories, a podcast from York Army Museum. Each week we share an interview from the Royal Dragoon Guards audio archive. Throughout June we will be sharing interviews with World War II veterans. You can find more details about the Royal Dragoon Guards oral history project in the show notes. If you want to find out a bit more about our museum, there are links to our website and social media channels in the show notes too. In this week's interview you can hear Lieutenant Colonel Ben Tottenham discuss his experiences of the Second World War, and his service in the Sharpshooters. Lieutenant Colonel Tottenham served with the 5th Inniskilling Dragoon Guards from 1943 to 1947, and with the Sharpshooters from 1954 to 1965. Thanks for listening, future episodes will drop every Friday. Uh, I am uh, Barry Port, and uh, today I'm interviewing Ben Topman at his home in Ramsbury in Wiltshire. And the date today is the 26th of uh, September 2013. Ben, before I start the, the main part of the interview, I'd like to ask you for a brief resume of your, of your army service. I enlisted in the army in 1939 at the beginning of the war and then was in the Home Guard until my serious soldiering began. I, my date of birth is the 24th of the 10th, 1922. My service in the Skins was from May 1943 to December 1946, and in the Sharpshooters later, after the war, in the sharpshooters from 1954 to 1965 when I commanded the regiment as a lieutenant colonel. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, going back to the, the start of your army career, was there a, a family background to the army? Um, perhaps you can provide us with some details about that. I think I, what I would like to do is to tell you really by background why I joined the Skins. I'm the youngest of four children of Angel Archdale, the daughter of Sir Edward Archdale, Bart of Riversdale, County of Manor, and Percy Tottenham from Glenfarn Hall, County Leitrim, who was the son of Captain Francis Tottenham, 10th foot and Westmeath militia. They were married in 1909 and it was a union of two ascendancy families. The ascendancy qualification was confirmed by Her Majesty at Hughes commissioning when with Richard Keithley as the commandant we were both privileged to be presented to Her Majesty. She asked Hugh which regiment he was going to, and he told her, and then she turned to me and looked at my tie and said, and you're in the ascendancy here, another of them. <laughs> I spent many holidays at Riversdale, which of course was only a few miles at away from Enniskillen, uh, both at Riversdale, at Castle Archdale, and Nikon Castle. Uh, so that my background 
was definitely Alstom and Fermanagh. I first noticed the inner skillings when I was old enough to be interested in my family background. Mervyn Archdale was a cornet in 1832, racehorse owner, and retired as a captain in 1847. After that beginning, I went on to Repton and to Oriel College, Oxford, where I read classics. <clears throat> My all Oxford entries, entrance, uh, all Oxford arrivals went to the town hall to be interviewed by the recruiting sergeant. I said, I want to be an inner skilly. Do you want to walk or ride? <laughs> ride, I said. He pointed to the RACQ. I then served for the, that year in the Oxford University Armoured Squadron in Parks Road, finishing with Certificate B. The, I finished in July 42 when we went to Blackdown pre octu That was a bit of a shock to the young gentleman who'd spent the year in the comfort of Oxford or Cambridge. Lord Romilly, a Coldstream guardsman, was in charge of the turnout. When he first saw our barracroom, he said it was filthy and would come back in a week's time. We took him at his word, bumped the floor with every care and attention, and when he came back in a week's time, he said, I can't see how they managed to get it up to this standard in a week. <laughs> <laughs> a typical Coldstream. <laughs> he was a Coldstream. Yeah. <clears throat> From there I went to Sandhurst, RAC Octu, which was an extremely effective course, remembering that during that period it was entirely directed to bringing RAC candidates of young officers up to standard. It was a six-month course, four weeks each, a square, driving and maintenance, gunnery, wireless, six weeks, including Morse and tactics, six weeks, making up six, six months in all. I passed out in 1943, being awarded the belt for the best cadet. I should not forget at the end the glorious Irish Guards Sergeant Major, Tommy McCart, who was coming to the Yorktown Gate, which was open in those days, and a cadet. Tommy was, of course, dressed in his long grey 
dress coat, and of course he had a hat uh, with the green band. And a cadet gave me a salute. I threw him up a flip of my finger, just like the adjutant. <laughs> All right, now, I joined the regiment at Duncombe Park in Yorkshire. This was an alarming experience, encountering a lot of very sophisticated officers who had extricated themselves in a fighting withdrawal from Belgium and returned intact, although they had to leave their vehicles behind, to England. They were bored that they were still in the Imperial Reserve and not committed to war again. Colonel Hook Sangster was an alarming officer and we very shortly went up to camp at Sledmere, a tented camp at Sledmere, and practiced hull and turret down formations on Tatton Sykes land over the world. Hook was an alarming character and Bob Holderness, the assistant adjutant, kept a stock of pencils because if you were on regimental orders, Hook was inclined to bash the pencils into the table and Bob had some spare ones in hand. A-H-Q, A and H-Q returned to Linden Hall in Northumberland. B Squadron was at Netherwitten, commanded by Gerald Kildare, and C at Long Framlington, with John Ward Harrison in charge. The my squadron leader was Craig Gibson, and I don't think we really hit it off. Hit it all. Hit it off. Even Muriel Adamson, two sisters, lived in the house which they owned, and we had a great deal to do with them. Morris Williams, <coughs> um, John Gillette, and Kenneth Woods, and there was a lot of partying <coughs> in true, in a skilling style. We made friends with the Milburns at Geisens and the Eustace Smiths, and Anne Eustace Smith is now the Dowager Duchess of Leinster, having married Gerald Kildare. Xmas that year was at Wheating Hall in Brandon, Suffolk, and we finally ended up as our last um, billet before we went overseas at Fornham St. Martin. <clears throat> um, so during this time you were in A Squadron, I believe. Um, what, what sort of vehicles, what sort of tanks did you have at that time? They were Cromwell tanks, as far as I remember, and of course they were not subjected to the strain 
but they were in Normandy, either from enemy action or the terrain, and I think there were five troops each of three Cromwells, and then separately there would have been well, Ben, you, you, you've mentioned uh, the, the, the training that each of the squadrons took part in uh, on, on the Cromwells. Uh, obviously, as time moved forward, we got, uh, obviously, D-Day had happened, uh, and I, I should imagine that the regiment got its orders eventually uh, to deploy. I, don't, I, I do believe that you didn't, you didn't deploy with your own vehicles, did you? I don't think we did. I, really, all I can remember is being sent with a, some three-tonners to collect all the ammunition that was needed. Um, as we hadn't brought our own tanks over, there must have been fresh tanks which needed uh, crewing and ammunition providing. Right. And uh, can you remember where you actually picked these vehicles up from? Were they sort of well inland or were they by the sea? Oh, no. Can't okay. begin to answer that one. Okay. Mm. Mm. Right, so you've now, you've now arrived uh, in, in Normandy. Um, obviously there was a amount of preparation before you moved off. Um, can, can you describe the early uh, weeks there? Were there, were, were there any, was there any contact with the enemy? No, the first thing I remember is that the squadrons had to take charge of their vehicles and get them ready for action. I was sent with to collect a large amount of ammunition, both shot and small arms for the, um, and the machine gun, which I brought back to the squadrons. As a foretaste of action, we were sent up to a particularly exposed crossroads, which might be have been described as an opportunity, opportunity target for the Germans. And Patrick Levy was killed talking to his former comrades in the 4th, 7th Dragoon Guards. And I was sent by Craig Gibson the following day to the Abbe Jouemonde to collect his body. And we buried him on the hillside near Bayer with Tony Levy, his brother, and Gerald Kildare, the commanding officer of B Squadron. Right. So that was the um, that a rather course. sad, a rather sad incident to, yeah. uh, before you even started to move forward. Really. Yeah. Um, I also believe that uh, the regiment lost um, some people in a, in a in an accident on on the beach in a similar yes, time frame. That's right. On the twentieth of August, uh, Patrick's uh, death was on the twenty eighth. The previous uh, on the twentieth. There was a beach party 
and Padre Newsom was drowned trying to save somebody who got out of their depth. So there were two tragedies, both of which were unexpected, before the regiment was even in action. Dead cattle, cows and horses, and the stench of the dead livestock, and then the battle for Montpensant, dust and extreme heat. Once we got into action, the, the drill was to, at nights, to dig a hole under the tank, because if you didn't do that, anti-personnel bombs would be dropped, and if you were outside, you would be in, at risk of fragments. The uh, rations came up at about two o'clock with petrol, and one stood too ready to move at about four o'clock because, of course, we're, we were at the shortest period of the year when the night was extremely short. We left the Chateau de Groveron, I think, on August the 31st for the long drive uh, to the northeast towards Lisieux, and we crossed the Seine at Saint Pierre de Vauvray. At Lisieux, I remember being the centres and LO uh, to the 51st Highland Division, and um, I had dinner with the commanding officer and the adjutant and when I had a bed for the night it was in a, a stable with some very strongly smelling straw but in the middle of the night Burn, my driver, knocked on the door and said can I come and sleep on your floor, sir. The cook is after me with a knife. Uh, I was not surprised as Byrne was rather a good-looking boy. <laughs> I think that was the call. <laughs> I think that was the trouble. <clears throat> um, now it's Ghent, isn't it, is the next thing. Um, September. Oh, September. Uh, all right. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's good. The regiment was directed towards Ghent, and I succeeded in finding a bridge at Veteran over the over the river. It was one of those curious wooden structures, which was held a lot aloft by chains, some local resistance helped us 
to lower the bridge so it was viable for tanks. And we used the Gunner RH-8 tank behind us to pass the word back to Sunray that the bridge was viable. RHQ, or, or rather Reckie, yes, Reckie and RHQ went on and spent the night at the Chateau de Destelbergen, several miles further on. And in the middle of dinner, where champagne and all things pleasant flourished, Charles de Cellier de Moraville, who had served in the Premier Guide, a Belgian regiment, came through the French windows. And from then on, he was attached to the regiment and later commissioned. He was a brilliant source of information about all activities in the area. My next recollection is of the liberation of Togenboss around the 20th of October. The 53rd Welch Division was the main attacking force with the regiment in support. The um, Reiki was involved before the attack, turn and turn about with first tanks in the area of Newlands and Uden. The attack was successful and we have been back to Satogenbos at the 75th anniversary of the liberation for a magnificent reception by the Dutch. And that was our last association visit to the, the battle area. But it is worth recording how generously we were entertained by the Dutch on our last visit. Right. Christmas came up next at Munstergeline, where a regimental review was organised by Peter and me. And we did a take of the Western Brothers, Kenneth and George, whose refrain was were frightfully BBC, which we changed into were frightfully 5DG, <laughs> interspersed with sharp quips such as the Colonel's miles in front today, there simply were no Bosch. <laughs> A nice one. Yeah. Um, As well as our attempt to take off the Western Brothers, a series of, uh, an ode called Push On Ricky was written by a number of, of troopers. 
The time has come, our Robert said, to earn your daily margin bread. 5.88 sly on ahead. Push on, Ricky, push on. Ginty's in an awful stew. The road is blocked, he can't get through. But Robert told him what to do. Push on, Ricky, push on. Swanning down the road, our Ben said, Open order, march, and then, proceeding to inspect his men, Push on, Ricky, push on. At Malines, um, the colonel was kind enough to write to General Evans, mentioning Jack Bissell and myself as doing well in Ricky. So at least I got a mention. <laughs> Always nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've read that letter. I, I, that letter is published in one of the regimental history books, I think. Yeah. Um, which one? I can't the, remember the, which one. Um, it might have been Tracks in the Europe. Ode. Yeah. No, the, the letter that was written about you uh, uh, to General Evans. Oh, that. Yes, that's yeah. in... That's in Change and challenge. I yes, think. it is. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, it's in here. Yes. No, it's, uh, that's something I wanted to show you. You know, that was. Uh, that's the, right. Fifty-six. So always nice to get a, a mention. Um, yeah. Just to make sure I got this right, Ben, in my own mind. Um, uh, you when did you, when did you actually uh, transfer to to Recky? When did that actually happen? Well, it must have been. A, Early or must have been in August because come high, um, Lizio and uh, must have been the middle of August. Right. Yeah. Right. Was that a welcome move to, oh, yeah. to move from <laughs> <laughs> to move from a tank squadron? To yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm. Right. Now, I wonder. If, at some point, when the regiment was out of the line, I asked Tadpole Bridgewater, the second in command, if I could have four days' leave to go and see my sister, who was married to a Frenchman and spent the war in Paris. He said, yeah, yes, perhaps reluctantly, but... I organised the billets for a, a red camp in Amiens and then he lent me a dispatch rider who I travelled on pillion on his motorbike to Paris uh, and arrived successfully. Saw an American patrol and he said you're not supposed to be here I said no but can you take me to the Avenue Mozart or the and the Boulevard Jasmin yes so he did I climbed up the six floors to that flat and total surprise when I was greeted by my sister we spent the night at Fouquet's and Lascott, the fashionable bars, and talked till the dawn. The following day, I decided it was time that 
that I started to go back to the regiment. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't as easy as coming. The, it was sick fog, and the aeroplane, after one attempt at one of those coal, or, or there were a lot of pits, uh, and it went over the top of one successfully, and went back to uh, the aerodrome. Tried again and failed, so I took to the American Red Bull route and hitched a lift on an American truck. I got as far as the point where the Red Bull route diverged and I knew I couldn't go any further, so I got out and the Almighty was on my side, a regimental truck came past just in time because I would have been court-martialed if I'd been any later. The regiment had gone back into action rather sooner than expected. Well. <laughs> did you get that? I did, yes. And <laughs> clearly the uh, the second in command had total faith in you um, yeah, well, yeah. as a young man. <laughs> he was very, he was cross. <laughs> he was cross, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful story. And, yeah. and what, what a great thing to happen, actually, to be able, <laughs> to, be able to visit your sister. Yeah, uh, exactly. In, in, under those conditions. Yeah, just let's see what we've done. Right, we've done. Well, at some point, I think it was a, at, at a point when uh, Robert sent for me and said, you are to go as a liaison officer to brigade. I wept, literally, and said, I don't want to go. He tactfully said, the Colonel only sends the best. So I was mollified. But it was a totally different world. Huge column of vehicles. I'd never seen so many. Everybody, even down to the squad, the captain in charge of signals, and it was a sort of caravan sarai at nights when they harboured. The brigade commander was Tony Wingfield. Uh, brigade Major Tobel, Toby Farnell Watson, the signals, Pat Fitzgerald. Uh, the other LOs were Ian Forbes Leith and Gerald Lassells, and there would be plenty of cries from, from Brigade. Have you seen Blood Royal lately? It was a bitterly cold winter and my task with others was to man the Brigade link or to take orders in the middle of the night to the commanding officers of the first tanks, or the eight Tsars, or the skins, I would reach the regimental area, tap on the top of the white scout car, where Teddy Swetnam would be sleeping, and amazingly enough, he woke up at once, I would give him his orders, and return to brigade headquarters. How how did you travel? I mean, what was oh, your... Oh, in my, in my Daimler Dingo. Right, okay. 
Yeah. The war correspondent of the Sunday Times, one R.W. Thompson, picked up some good stories while he, he was uh, at work and got one about me on the 18th of March, which apparently was published in the London papers, of how I had captured Racefelt by accident. And the way he reported this was thus. I had come up from Erla, where the 6th Airborne were coming in, and come on straight up the road to Racefelt. And I was quoted as saying, I thought Brigade might be there. The place seemed absolutely deserted. You know, that kind of eerie vacuum feeling a place has before it's actually taken. Driver Dominic Haffernan of Dorking confirmed the eerie, but is fairly used to this kind of swanny. <laughs> they had both seen some groups of Germans packing up in the fields, and then suddenly they realised that, that Racefeld hadn't yet been captured. We advised Brigade over the air and met the recce unit feeling their way up the road. <laughs> I was sent from Brigade to take the surrender at the bottom end of the Kiel Canal at Brunsbüttelkoch of um, 2,000 Germans under the command of Major General Witkopf. Dickie Brett Smith and Dick McAdam of the 11th Hussars were with me, but as the senior regiment, I took command. We marched up to this German general, saluted smartly, and then said, you will meet us in the Burgomaster's office tomorrow morning. There we met, we had an interpreter with us. There we met and uh, Orders were given. The general's second in command saluted with a, a Nazi salute, which we shouted, No, not that, salute properly. And we left the burgomaster to organise the, the accommodation of 2,000 Germans having taken the surrender. I went to the naval dockyard and took the surrender from Capitaine Jose Haya and his next in command, forgotten Captain Freiherr von Egensburg. I collected all the guns and binoculars and the um, he gave me his own binoculars, not exactly as a gift, but separate from the, all the rest of the surrendered articles. Right. All right. So after the um, surrender of the, uh, the, the Germans, um, where did the regiment finally end up? 
I take it the next period was when we were in Itzehu, where there were adjacent barracks with the eight Tazars in one and the regiment in the other. And we had a separate mess, and that was where those who rode had started to keep horses. And it was a preparation for a later period after we'd moved when we took over a German riding school and the young officers were taught to ride if they didn't already know. And I remember very well the commands, quit your stirrups, ride trot, circle right and rejoin the rear of the ride. So, so whilst the, the regiment had, had formed up in, in Itzho, um, I, I believe you then uh, went back from Recce back into A Squadron, is that correct? Y yes, it is. Gilbert Monkton was in command of A Squadron, and at that time, or slightly later, I went on a long gunnery course at Lulworth, from which... I returned with a distinction and then became the regimental gunnery officer and also messing officer. I still have pictures of <coughs> observing the strike of shot at uh, the ranges at Putlos firing into the Baltic. <coughs> right, so is that the way the range work was done at that time? You weren't actually firing at hard targets, you were literally just firing into the... Out, out firing the into the Baltic. Well, at targets. Right, OK. Uh, I, I believe uh, that you were also awarded two decorations uh, from the Belgium. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, I was given the award of mention in dispatches uh, for the um, successful finding of the bridge at Veteran, and also at some later point, Rupert Kettle, the adjutant, rang up and said that the Belgians had um, sent the Order of Leopold and Croix de Guerre, and uh, it would be appropriate for him to give them to me. <laughs> Wise. They make a pretty show. They do, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you uh, obviously um, after the the hostilities, you you went off and did the the uh, regimental gunnery officers course, and I believe the regiment then uh, went to to Munster in forty six, and I think you were still the regimental gunnery officer at that time. Yes, I served with the regiment because, of course. <laughs> We had to wait to be demobilised, and we, the um, young officers, were not particularly attracted by Colonel Perry. And I can remember an occasion when he suggested the answer to some tactical exercise without troops question, and um, 
Bill Bradfield, uh, who had a, an MC awarded at Bourneville, said, oh no, Colonel, we wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. Hey? All right. Uh, you got that one down? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> You asked me if I would give you a resume of my service in the sharpshooters. Mm. This was from 1954, when I was invited to join by Ian McCrell to the end of 1965 when I commanded from 1962 to 1965. While the skins were fighting a withdrawal from Belgium, the sharpshooters were later in attacking mode at the battles of El Gobi against the Italians and at Alamein, and Alamein El Halfa against the Germans. El Gobi is their memorial day, and then the third COI went up the Adriatic side of Italy, and the fourth COI went up the west coast, but as the country of that part of Italy was not suitable for tank operation, they were withdrawn preparatory to deployment in Normandy. Well, after the trauma of Villas Bocage, they were amalgamated as the third, fourth CLY. So I joined in 1954, as I said, in A Squadron as second in command in McCrill. The commanding officers successively during my period there were Teddy Bradbury, MC, and then Charlie Pierce, MC. The regiment had won one George Medal, nine DSOs, 42 MCs, eight DCMs, and 71 MMs. There were 381 names on the Road of Honor. So no one could say that they were not extremely experienced. And when I joined, the, there was hardly an NCO who had not got campaign medals and which gave the regiment a great deal of experience. During 1955, we took part in the exercise London Pride when a complete division was launched on the English countryside. Then in successive years, there were camps at Castle Martin, at Lulworth twice over, at Ollerton, 
at Penhale and the old familiar West Down deploying at Orcheston Down. Uh, in one of the usual changes to the structure of the army in 1960, the regiment was called upon to amalgamate with the Kent Yeomanry, a very distinguished gunner regiment, and to retrain them to an armoured rover. My predecessor, Ian McCrill, uh, exercised great diplomacy in overcoming the objections to this amalgamation and the objections of many Kent Yeoman old comrades. The success of his amalgamation was reflected in the regiment when I took command in 1962. Uh, early in 1963, we had a, a weekend of preparation for the Guidon, and the actual ceremony took place in July 1963, when Princess Alex was received by the great and the good at Maidstone. We advanced in review order with the support of the Royals Band and earned the accolade from a retired Grenadier Brigadier. I have never seen the ceremony performed better by a yeomanry regiment and seldom by regulars. Oh, in 1964, I've got a picture of John Ward Harrison as BRAC uh, for dinner when we were at Shruton. And the honorary colonels under whom I served were Arthur Onslow, the Earl of Onslow, 56 to 61, John Abergenny, the Marquis, who I had known as G1 of 7th Armoured Division in Normandy, and Pip Roberts, who we know well, and he was BRAC. Uh, I want to mention the my predecessor, Ian McCrill, who was always extremely reserved. And it was only when I was preparing the tribute to him that I gave in Southwark Cathedral that I discovered that he had served in GHQ Liaison Regiment, known as Phantom, a secret organization which was much appreciated in the desert, where they communicated straight from the very foremost forward line back to army, cutting out all the intermediate stations. He landed on Gold Beach at HR and later served as liaison to the Americans and 
earned the award of the Bronze Star. None of this came out in any of his conversations with members of the regiment. I also delivered tributes to Bill Bradfield, who was the MC, won his MC at Bourneville, and then became a sharpshooter's medical officer, ideal for providing me with enemy on tactical exercises with troops. Um, the regiment, a, we have a very active regimental association and we are having a luncheon in October with 17 officers present who were on parade at the Guidon ceremony. 50 years this year and uh, the, we shall also have present the commanding officer of the Kent and Sharpshooters Yeomanry and Associated Signal Squadron, which is a tribute to the success of the regiment in surviving the latest reorganisation when most of the Yeomanry regiments have been reduced to troops or, or signal squadrons. I would conclude by saying that the Yeomanry is in my blood because my great-great-grandfather, Thomas Grimston, raised the Grimston Hussars in Yorkshire in 1794 in face of the French threat and this later became the East Riding Yeomanry. <laughs>